Welcome to today's VJ Hemel podcast. In today's podcast, we will be talking to leading experts about the latest updates on T-cell therapies for the treatment of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. First up, we have Jeremy Abramson of the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center in Boston. Jeremy, could you please give us an update on the Transcend NHL 001 and Transcend Outreach 007 studies? Hello, it'll be my pleasure to talk to you today about lysocaptogene marilusal in large B-cell lymphomas. Among 256 evaluable patients for response, the best overall response rate was 73%, with 53% of patients achieving a complete remission. The median duration of response has not been reached at last follow-up, and with one year of median follow-up, the median progression-free survival was seven months, and 44% of patients remained progression-free at one year. The one-year overall survival was 58%. We look at adverse events of special interest among all treated patients. We see that this was a very well-tolerated product overall, with only 42% of patients having any grade cytokine release syndrome, which was severe in only 2%. Neurologic toxicities occurred in 30% of patients and was severe in 10%, and 20 and 21% of patients required tocilizumab or corticosteroids, respectively. We look at outcome based on patient subgroups. We can see uh, that uh, the majority of subgroup patients, including high-risk subsets, uh, achieve similar rates of complete response. I will note that patients who required bridging therapy, as well as patients with higher tumor burden, appear to have lower rates of complete response. These groups, of course, typically track together, as those patients with higher tumor burden are likelier to require bridging therapy. If we look at subgroup analysis by progression-free survival, and specifically looking at histology, we see that favorable, durable responses were seen across all relevant histologies. The most favorable outcomes appear to be in primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma and transformed follicular lymphoma, but also excellent outcomes with durable progression-free survival observed in high-grade B-cell lymphoma, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma NOS, and DLBCL transformed from other indolent lymphomas. I'll note that despite a slightly lower CR rate among patients who required bridging therapy, there's no significant difference in progression-free survival based on patients who receive bridging or no bridging therapy. I next wanna highlight the outreach study. Looking at the results among all patients in the study, the overall response rate was 77% with CRs in 57% of patients. And these uh, objective responses and CRs were similar in patients treated in both the outpatient and inpatient setting. We look at adverse uh, events of special interest. We similarly see uh, encouraging rates of uh, low CRS and neurotoxicity as seen in Transcend with any grade CRS in 41% uh, of uh, patients and no incidence of grade three or higher CRS. Any grade neurotoxicity was seen in 30% and was severe in 7%. And the toxicity profile was once again quite similar in patients treated in the outpatient and inpatient setting. Thank you for your insight, Jeremy. Next up, we have Safa Nilapu, who's going to tell us about the use of axicabtogene cellulocell, also known as axicell, in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Safa, could you please start by giving us an overview of the Zuma-1 study? I think this audience knows pretty well <clears throat> the results from the Zuma-1 study that led to the approval of axicell in relapsed refractory large B-cell lymphoma. 
in a total of 101 patients treated on the single arm phase two trial, the best overall response rate was 83% and the complete response rate was 58%. And at a median follow-up of 27 months, 39% of the patients remained progression-free with the plateauing of the PFS curve noted around the six-month time point with very few relapses beyond that. At ASH this year, last year, Updated data from four years of follow-up was presented, and at uh, four years, 44% of patients were alive. And as compared to historical data, compared to the scholar one study, we observed that at the two-year time point, the overall survival improved from 12% in the scholar one study with pre-CAR T therapies to 50% in the Zuma one study, suggesting this represents a major advance for the management of these patients. Thanks, Tatva. Could you now give us an update on the Phase 2 Zuma 12 study and maybe talk a bit about how this compares with the results of the Zuma 1 study? At interim analysis, the best overall response rate was 85% and the complete response rate of over 74%. The median follow-up on the study was 9.3 months at the time of the presentation and 70% of the responses were ongoing. The median time to response was one month for both objective response as well as complete response. 19% of the patients who initially had PR or stable disease at the one month time point subsequently converted to a complete remission. We also compared the phenotype of the CAR T-cell product from the Zuma 12 study to that of the Zuma 1 study. We found that the Zuma 12 CAR T products had a higher frequency of naive-like T-cells defined by CCR7 and CD45 or a positivity. And you can see here in this table, 34% of the of the T-cells on the Zuma 12 study were naive-like phenotype as opposed to 14% of the Zuma 1 study. And this was associated with a greater CAR T-cell expansion on the Zuma 12 compared to Zuma 1, both with respect to the peak CAR T-cell expansion as well as CAR AUC level, even though the median tumor burden was lower on Zuma 12 compared to Zuma 1. These results suggested that the CAR T-cell fitness may be improved if this therapy was moved to earlier lines of therapy. Just to finish off, could you talk on the emergence of resistance to axicel in large B-cell lymphomas? We had previously reported that about a third of the patients treated with axicel in DLBCL in third line setting and beyond um, appear to have CD19 loss at the time of progression. And this is thought to be due to either CD19 mutation or loss of heterozygosity or alternative splicing. Now, there are two recent studies um, that provide insights into potential mechanisms of resistance in patients who have CD19 positive relapses. Well, one pointed to the T-cell intrinsic mechanism where T-cell fitness seems to be an issue, and the other pointed to a tumor intrinsic mechanism with CD58 loss or alteration. Now, in the study that was reported by our group in Nature Medicine, we also found that the responses that occur in these patients after XSL tend to occur very early using cell-free DNA sequencing. So Michael Green from our group at MD Anderson found that this molecular response at day seven may be associated with durability of response. In fact, if these patients had a five-fold decrease in the variant allele frequency by day seven after XSL infusion. 75% of these patients remain in complete remission at three months, but if they had less than five-fold decrease in molecular response at day seven, all of the patients relapse by three months, suggesting you know, these responses occur very, very early. 
Now, in this uh, study, we also performed single cell RNA-seq of the CAR-T infusion products and found that um, CAR-T products that had a higher proportion of memory CD8 T cells as defined by CCR7 and CD27 positivity were associated with a higher chance of achieving a complete remission. But uh, CAR-T products that had a you know, exhausted phenotype of CD8 T cells as defined by dual expression of LAG3 and TIN3 were associated with um, partial remission of progressive disease. Presented at ASH last year, the CD58 mutation or alteration was associated with poor outcome after XSL and relapsed refractory large B cell lymphoma. You can see here on the left, um, CD58 wild type tumors had a better chance of achieving a complete remission, almost 80% compared to CD58 alteration as defined by mutation or decreased expression by immunohistic chemistry. And this was also associated with progression free survival with the wild type having improved survival. And this was thought to be because of the interaction between CD2 on the CAR T cells and CD58 on the, on the tumor cells. Thank you, Satva. Now we're going to hear from Barbara Savoldo of the University of North Carolina, who's going to speak on the use of CD30 CAR T cells. Barbara, could you please start off by explaining the rationale for targeting CD30 and then discuss the potential challenges of using these therapies to treat patients with T cell lymphoma? So CD30 is an intriguing target for non-Hodgkin lymphoma because it's expressed in anaplastic large cell lymphoma, neoplastic cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and a proportion of peripheral T-cell lymphoma. More importantly, it is uh, uh, absent or a very low uh, expression on normal tissues and cells, uh, minimizing the risk for a target of tumor toxicity. Previously, we've shown in preclinical models, uh, models the efficacy of uh, a chimeric antigen receptor targeting the CD30. And so because the CD30 is expressed uh, by uh, Hodgkin-Reed-Stenberg cells, uh, clinical trials uh, with the CD30 chimeric antigen receptor T-cell have been uh, used uh, in, uh, for treatment of Hodgkin lymphoma patients. And these are published uh, results uh, of the safety and efficacy of this approach in a patient that have relapsed refractory Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, obviously, not only for Hodgkin lymphoma, but also for T-cell lymphoma, this is clearly a treatment opportunity. And in those uh, studies, we have also patients described with anaplastic large cell lymphoma receiving CD30 CAR T-cells. And again, the treatment is shown to be very safe and effective, especially after multiple infusion. So these are some unpublished studies with CD30 CAR T-cells in T-cell lymphoma. And here we've treated the, about nine patients with CD30 T-cell lymphoma. Uh, the treatment, again, is shown to be safe, uh, although uh, the outcome uh, promising, but certainly suboptimal compared to uh, patient with Hodgkin lymphoma. And these highlight issues that, uh, potential issues that are peculiar to this uh, T-cell lymphoma. So this is, a, for example, persistence. So this is a patient from the prior cohort that has been published. This patient had an enteropathy-associated T-cell lymphoma type 1, uh, and he received the CD30 CAR T-cells after failing the treatment, including an allogenic stem cell transplantation. The treatment was well tolerated, and the patient achieved a complete response that is durable for more than two years. But as you can see, the expansion of the CAR T cell in the peripheral blood is certainly suboptimal compared to patient uh, in receiving the same treatment in uh, but with Hodgkin lymphoma. And so, uh, for this reason, and to improve long-term anti-tumor surveillance, 
we have opened now a clinical trials where we are uh, giving multiple infusion to patients with T-cell lymphoma in each infusion preceded by lymphodepletion. Another challenge in T-cell lymphoma is probably manufacturing. So achieving therapeutic doses for autologous CD30 CAR T-cell from patients with T-cell lymphoma is feasible, as shown here. Um, However, uh, while in Hodgkin lymphoma patient, fewer patients progressed between uh, procurement to therapy. This is not the case for T-cell lymphoma patients. Uh, and indeed, about 50% uh, of them uh, showed, uh, um, were unable to receive a treatment because they either progressed or died. And this is clearly uh, underlined how this uh, disease, uh, T-cell lymphoma, are more aggressive compared to Hodgkin lymphoma. And for this reason, maybe the uh, time required for culture, testing, and obviously QA uh, may be an obstacle so that we should uh, work on optimizing production, release the testing, and maybe consider off-the-shelf platform for this particular um, subset of patient. Thank you very much, Barbara. Please could you now tell us about any other challenges in the field of CAR T-cells and just wrap up by discussing the future of CD30 CAR T-cells in non-Hodgkin lymphoma? Other challenges, uh, not just for CD30 CAR T-cell, but for CAR T-cell in general, are clearly the tumor microenvironment. So for Hodgkin lymphoma, we know that uh, the tumor is uh, enriched in uh, PDL1, and so this is uh, clearly have a, a negative effect on the function of T cells. And so there is a small cohort um, of published recently of patients with Hodgkin lymphoma that went on receiving checkpoint inhibitors after CD30 CAR T cell. And this resulted in a good uh, progression-free survival. And we have observed a similar, uh, we have a similar observation and the benefit of the CD30 CAR T cells, uh, sorry, of checkpoint inhibitor in patients that have received the CD30 CAR T cells when they progress. And so obviously this is something, a combination that might be beneficial also in, in to, or to be considered for T cell lymphoma. We also have a final finally uh, the challenge of a tumor homing. We know that, for example, Hodgkin lymphoma and cutaneous T-cell lymphoma produce chemokines like Tarkin and DC, for which the T-cell receptor lack the uh, cognate receptor, CCR4. And we previously shown that co-expressing CCR4 and CD30 uh, in CAR um, improve homing and anti-tumor activity. And so we went on opening a clinical trial where we are comparing CAR T-cell expressing the CD30 CAR and the CCR4 uh, chemokine receptor with the T-cells that only express the CD30 CAR. And have so far infused a Hodgkin lymphoma patient and one patient with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, showing again that the treatment is uh, feasible safe and have a very promising anti-tumor activity. It will be very interesting to understand you know, the, the, the efficacy of this approach in T-cell lymphoma, especially because of the antigen heterogeneity that is in this lymphoma compared to Hodgkin, clearly dissecting the role of trafficking to tumor, evaluating uh, uh, factors that are uh, you know, impacting the outcome of this patient and clearly uh, studying the role of the tumor microenvironment. Thanks for that, Barbara. Now we have Max Mamonkin of the Baylor College of Medicine in the US, who's going to give us an update on the results of the Phase 1 Magenta study of CD5 targeting CAR T-cells and T-cell malignancies. We've uh, developed a clinical study uh, of autologous CD5 CAR T-cells uh, in patients with refractory and relapsed T-cell lymphoma and ALL. As long as the disease had more than 50% expression of CD5 in the blasts, it was open to both adult and pediatric disease 
uh, patients. Uh, and um, it was the first men's study, so we designed it as a bridge transplant. Otherwise, the patients uh, received a single uh, infusion of CAR T cells, and there was a classic dose escalation study ranging from 10 to the 7 to 10 to the 8 uh, CAR T cells per meter square. They represent um, all main disease subtypes, including peripheral T cell lymphoma, AITL, cutaneous disease, and ATLL in one patient. And it, uh, they had a mix of uh, relapsed and primary factor disease. And they're all adults here. The toxicity was very favorable with maximum grade 2 CRS and grade 2 neurotoxicity observed in one patient. Otherwise, they, the safety profile was quite favorable here with no adverse events noted. Um, expansion of CD5 CAR T cells followed the classic pattern of CD28 stimulated CARs with uh, peak expansion between week 1 and week 4. And they gradually subsided by week 8, although we could see some, uh, some CAR T cells as long as uh, 9 months in the follow-up studies. Um, but otherwise, it was, it was a transient expansion and persistence. And we didn't really see a huge difference between different dose levels here. CAR T cells produced uh, complete remissions straight out in two patients. Uh, in one patient, they, they caused uh, what's called a mixed response, uh, where they got rid of most of the lesions and received a second dose of CFI CAR T cells and proceeded to transplant and remained in remission ever since. Very nice uh, partial response in one patient with ATLL as well. Um, and we haven't really seen any evidence of uh, permanent loss of CD5 in the resistant disease, uh, suggesting uh, the lack of responses may be due to insufficient uh, potency of the cells uh, or persistence of the cells in vivo. One response is a gentleman with multiply uh, relapsed PTCL, a single dose of CAR T cells uh, resulting in complete remission four weeks later. So CAR T cells really can tackle bulky and disseminated T cell lymphoma. When we're trying to understand the factors that drive the responses in these patients, interestingly, we couldn't uh, find any evidence that expansion and persistence was correlated with responses. We see uh, really the similar peak expansion overall uh, persistence area under the curve between responders and non-responders, suggesting it's not due to the inability of CFI CAR T cells to expand and persist. But one thing that did stand out is uh, the length of manufacturing of CFI CAR T cell products. When we freeze the cells you know, on the standard protocol, which means it's, it's about six to seven days after cryopreservation, uh, none of these products really produce any responses. But when we shorten the manufacturing and allow cryopreservation as early as day three to five after transduction, then uh, when we started seeing response in these patients. And this also correlated with increased frequency of uh, cells that express CCR7 and CD62L, which are the the main homing molecules that guide T cells to lymph nodes where the sites of disease are, um, and also illustrate their minimum differentiated status. There was also a trend toward a higher frequency of CD27 positive cells in the short manufacturing products, suggesting that limiting the extent of T cell differentiation by shortening the process may be important in dictating responses here. And then finally, when we looked at what's happening with endogenous CD5 positive T cells that would be predicted to be also targets of these CAR T cells, Interestingly, we didn't really see evidence of selective ablation of the cells uh, by, by the CAR T cells. So we could find um, uh, good levels of circulating C3 positive cells in patients, even in those in which the disease had completely melted away. We, we could see uh, circulating cells that, of both CD4 and CD8 compartments, uh, suggesting that there's a population of normal T cells that are actually resistant to C5 CAR T, and um, they still retain CD5 expression. So we're looking at the mechanisms. That, um, that are underlying this uh, resistance. Thank you for that, Max. We're now going to hear from our final speaker, Susan Prokop, 
from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre, who's going to talk about the role of third-party EBV cytotoxic T lymphocytes in NHL. Over to you, Susan. In sequential trials of third-party EBV CTLs run at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we treated patients with three weekly infusions of one to two million T-cells per kilo per dose. Each T-cell line was um, selected based on sharing two of 10 HLA alleles at high resolution. And the toxicity associated with these infusions was similar to that seen with primary donor-derived T-cells, with six of 126 patients with possibly related SAEs and only two patients with graft-versus-host disease. Importantly, patients who did not achieve an immediate CR or dose-limiting toxicity could receive subsequent cycles of cells. In the treatment of rituximab refractory PTLD emerging after hematopoietic and solid organ transplant, we saw responses in 68 and 54% of patients, respectively. And importantly, these responses translated into overall survival far superior to that that would be expected for this high-risk patient population, with no patient who achieved a CR or PR dying of EBV PTLD. In conjunction with monitoring for clinical responses, we monitor for expansion of EBV CTL precursors in vivo in treated patients. And we do this by using a limiting dilution analysis that allows detection of the minimum seeding density at which EBV CTL precursor frequency function is assessed. And patients with higher peak EBV CTL precursor frequency fell into the category of patients who responded with responding patients having higher median peak frequencies. Importantly though, the CTL precursor frequencies can be separated for donor origin and durability of responses does not correlate to the durability of third-party CTLs in vivo. So in this example, we have one patient in whom the third-party T-cells were detectable for 10 days and one in whom third-party T-cells were detectable for almost two years. Both patients had durable responses to therapy. Another tool that is given to us by the use of third-party T-cells is the switch therapy. So patients who have disease that progresses through an initial line of EBV CTLs, in this example, restricted by A1101, we switch to a second line of T cells restricted by a different HLA allele, potentially recognizing a different EBV epitope. And in this example, or this approach, we're able to mediate responses in six of nine patients we treat it this way. This is one of the first patients we treated this way. He received three cycles of T cells restricted by a shared A1101 allele and had progression of disease. We then switched to a fourth line restricted by the B4403 allele and he had complete clinical and radiographic remission. And we were able to demonstrate detection of EBV CTL precursors in the circulation. So third-party donor-derived viral-specific T-cells overcome some of the limitations of primary donor-derived T-cells, both in terms of generation, but also in terms of efficacy by allowing us options for switch therapy, as well as allowing us to ensure that viral-specific T-cells are restricted through an HLA allele shared by the tumor or the target. The overall literature of third-party T-cells for treatment of PTLD 
composes of 127 patients with a 65% response rate and limited graft-versus-host disease. Thank you, Susan. Just to conclude, could you briefly describe the next steps that need to be taken in order to broaden the applicability of this therapy to other EBV-positive malignancies? Really, for this, there are two approaches being undertaken. One is the idea of better targeting the proteins expressed by type 1 and type 2 latency tumors. And the other, an approach being taken at MSK, is to try to induce these latency 1 tumor and 2 tumors to express a broader array of EBV antigens typically expressed by latency 3 tumors. That's all we have for you in today's podcast. I would like to thank all of our speakers for sharing their updates with us. For more podcasts and news on T-cell therapies for the treatment of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, visit vjhemonk.com and follow us on Twitter at vjhemonk. Be sure to subscribe to VJ Hemonk podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple and Podbean.